When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. What's going on, you guys? Welcome back to the Neighborhood Podcast. I'm one of the hosts of the podcast. My name is Kevin Valentin. And I'm the other host of the podcast. My name is Kyle Davro. Kev, it's popping, my guy. What you up to? <sighs> you know, just got back from the gym. Went to the barbershop today, worked a little late, you know, shit's just been getting crazy, but definitely a busy evening. We're sitting here recording it as 11, but grind don't stop, baby. How was your day? Oh, it was good. Just, you know, typical work. Nothing crazy. But uh, yeah, bro, I know we got a lot to get to. Uh, we got the NFL divisional round coming up this weekend. Got some big games to go over. And then there's some other things that we'll talk about since for some teams, uh, the offseason has already begun and we've already seen some moves taking place uh, within the coaching ranks of some of these teams. I know we'll get to that. And then uh, we might talk a little bit of, we might talk a little bit about the NBA, but uh, I'll let you have the floor since uh, you're going to cover the agenda today. Yes, sir. So as Kyle mentioned, the NFL divisional round begins on Saturday. So we are, of course, going to talk about the four games that are taking place. For Saturday, we have the Jaguars going up against the Chiefs. Let's see how Trevor Lawrence can match up against Patrick Mahomes when the lights shine the brightest. Uh, then we have the night game, which is going to be an NFC East duel. The Giants go up against the Eagles. We'll see if Daniel Jones and Saquon can repeat the same success they had in Minnesota the week before and see if Philadelphia can shake the rust that they showed and displayed the last time they played the Giants a few weeks ago. Flipping it over to Sunday, we're going to have the probably the game of the week, realistically, with Joe Burrow going up against Josh Allen. I mean, this is the game that we wanted to see a few weeks ago before the unfortunate injury to DeMar Hamlin. And uh, both teams struggled in their first game. So let's see who, who bounces back and which quarterback is going to move on to the AFC Championship. And then, of course, to close it out, we're going to have uh, a, reme- reme- a rematch of last year. The Cowboys are traveling to San Francisco. And uh, Dak Prescott and those boys finally shook that narrative of not being able to win in a way playoff game. And they uh, they sent Tom Brady and those Bucks packing. So we'll see if he can combat the rookie Brock Purdy and see what they can do. But uh, that's the slate for, for the weekend in terms of NFL content. Afterwards, we're going to kind of discuss, as Kyle already alluded to, I mean, Kyle, the, the Buccaneers went out there and they just they, they didn't just clean house. They basically like took a broom and just like brushed everybody out of the building. And I'm pretty sure they fired almost every single coach on that staff that was not named Todd Bowles. So we'll get into we'll get it'll into what a, the Bucks found it'll be a to new be. Slate. It'll yeah, definitely we'll, be a new slate. It'll it'll be a new era in Tampa at this point because we all know that Tom Brady may leave as well. So why not just kick everybody out at this point. So we're, we're all curious to see what happens, but we thought that that was something we needed to talk about because it is a little weird that everybody was basically sent home except for Todd Bowles. So we'll talk about that a little bit. 
And then, guys, we're at that point. We're getting closer to the midway point of the NBA season in terms of the All-Star game is approaching. So we are going to talk about our midseason MVP, who we think is going to win the award, who we think has been killing it this year. So, we'll, you know, Kyle and I, we always have difference of, differences of opinion there. So tune in for that. But, Kyle, I mean, dude, we, we, we got plenty to talk about today. So let's just kind of just dive right in. The divisional round. Trevor Lawrence, former number one overall pick. Going up against former MVP, former Super Bowl champion, Super Bowl MVP, Pat Mahomes. Jacksonville, just as a recap, had the third largest comeback in postseason history, beating the LA Chargers 31 to 30 after being down 27 to 0. Do you think they can go into Arrowhead, carry that momentum, and upset the Chiefs in their home? No. I think what happened last week was an anomaly with the Jags having that massive comeback against the Chargers, but going up against Patrick Mahomes and the Chiefs at Arrowhead with that crowd behind them, there's no way. Look, the fact that the, the Jaguars actually made it to a divisional round, I think is a major credit to themselves as a team and Doug Peterson being the head coach of the Jags in his first season. Because when you look at the Jags compared to what they were last year, this team has taken miles in miles of improvements compared to where they were last year with Urban Meyer. I mean, Urban Meyer was just an absolute disgrace as their head coach. And Doug Peterson, to his credit, has provided stability. And I think from a long-term perspective, this team has potential. It's just not going to be this year. Um, this is going to be a, a good way to really keep the momentum going with them getting to the divisional round. But I think this is where uh, their success is going to run out for this year, simply just because... Patrick Mahomes and the Chiefs, they have real expectations to possibly go for another Super Bowl this year. And the way that I see it, with Patrick Mahomes having the year that he had, he's probably going to win another MVP just because the numbers back it up. Threw for over 5,000 yards, had over, I believe, 40 touchdowns this year. And the Chiefs finished as a number one seed in the AFC, and they had one of the best records in the NFL. Now, when it comes to the Chiefs, Obviously, with them having the only buy in the AFC, there is that possibility of them displaying a little bit of rust uh, when this game does kick off this weekend. But I think they may deal with that rust for like a drive or two, and then I think they'll be fine from there on out. So, you know, the way that I see this game playing out from the first quarter to the end of the game is I think Jacksonville is going to try to establish getting out early. And I think this is going to be a complete antithesis of what they went through last week because when they went up against the Chargers, they were down 27 to nothing, like you said, Kev, in the lead up. And I think they're going to try to avert that at all costs because if they go down 27 nothing or something even similar to that type of score early against the Chiefs, there is no way that the Chiefs are going to let their foot off the pedal like the Chargers did in the second half of that game. So the Jags definitely have to make sure that they're, they're not turning the ball over and that they're just establishing long drives on offense to keep Patrick Mahomes and that Chiefs offense on the sideline. I don't foresee that happening just because I do believe that that Chiefs defense in the early stages of the game is going to get after Trevor Lawrence, try to force him into some situ situations where he throws an errant pass and that Chiefs secondary could come up with some turnovers. And I will say, Trevor has been known to be a little bit turnover prone. He's still relatively young. He's only in his second year. And you know, with him throwing four interceptions last week, there is a chance that he could possibly throw one, maybe even two in this game if he's not careful. And then 
you know, when you flip it to Patrick Mahomes and the Chiefs, I mean, all they have to do is maintain the consistency that they've had the entire year. They're one of the best teams in the NFL, and it's simply just because that offense has yet to really be stifled in any significant manner. And I just don't believe that that Jags defense, while they have shown some flashes of great potential, especially with that pass rush, that pass rush, uh, when they pin their ears back, it is one of the most underrated pass rushes in the NFL. But I think Pat and Andy Reid, they're going to come in with a game plan to counteract that by getting the ball out quickly, and especially with the Chiefs having some decent targets to throw to, like Juju Smith-Schuster, you've got Travis Kelsey, you've got McKinnon out of the backfield, who's been an absolute stud for them. I think there's just going to be too many options for Jacksonville to try to cover, and I think eventually the dam is going to break with that Jags defense, and the only way the Jags are probably going to win in that scenario is if they win in a shootout. I don't believe that's going to happen. I got the Chiefs winning this one relatively comfortably. I think they're probably going to put up somewhere around 27 to 34 points. And I think the Jags, I think they'll be they'll be able to score probably somewhere around 17 to 24. I do believe that they could score against the Chiefs defense just because the Chiefs defense this year, they're average. They do have a tendency to give up points here and there but not enough to the point where I think they lose this game. I think the Chiefs advance to the AFC Championship, and if I had to put a score on it, I'm going to say they win by the score of 31-21. to 21. I think they win by 10 points, and I think they'll play the AFC Championship against either the Bills or the Bengals the following week, but that's just how I see it. I mean, similar to what Kyle said, I'm definitely going to go with the Chiefs. I mean, uh, I will prevy to kind of go off of what Kyle was just talking about. The Chiefs defense is what I'm kind of going to circle on here. We do know for a fact that they have allowed a couple of teams to score a little bit more than they should have. And I mean, just to kind of go over their recent games, if you skip over the Vegas game that ended the season, I mean, with Jared Stidham, Raiders had nothing to play for. You go into the Broncos game, 27 to 24, they escaped by three points. The Seahawks game, the Seahawks could not get it going and all. Their defense actually stepped up that week, so that's going to be an anomaly, right? Then you go into the Texans, arguably the worst team in the NFL. The Chiefs barely escaped that game. That was 34-28. to They lose to the Bengals, 27-24. to The Rams are one of the worst teams in the league. They beat them 26-10. to That's no surprise. Then you go into the divisional opponent before that, the Chargers, 30-27. to The point I'm trying to make is here... The Chiefs have allowed bad teams to stay in games before. The Chiefs have allowed more points to bad teams than you would assume that they would. All I'm saying is it takes one drive to put a hole in a confident in the confidence of a defense. And Trevor Lawrence right now is riding a high. Yes, it started really low. Absolutely low. Four turnovers within the first half. Then you go and you have the second half that you did with three scores. You score a touchdown before the half, so you go in and end it with four. It just takes confidence, man. Wild card teams or, or, or underdog teams, should I say. Excuse me. I keep assuming that they're a, a wild card team, but they won the division somehow, some way. And um, Trevor Lawrence is just riding that wave right now, man. I think that defense is riding that wave as well. I mean, we know Jacksonville's defense has been very up and down. And they have rode some waves as well where, you know, they create a turnover when it matters the most. Um, they'll get a strip sack. They'll stop somebody on fourth down. Doug Peterson has this team rallied. Uh, I mean, excuse me. Doug Peterson has this team hyped, and they are rallying behind him. I mean, like what Kyle said, I mean, we're talking about Urban Meyer, Doug Peterson. It's a, it's a drastic difference. It's not even close. And it, it shows. Playoff berth. They haven't been in the playoffs in four or five seasons. We're talking about the last time they were there. 
2017, Blake Bortles was Saxonville. And, you know, that was debatable of whether or not they should have went to the Super Bowl that year as well. But that's neither here nor there. Um, they have returned back to this winning culture. And hopefully they continue to proceed because of the young pieces that they have. And then you flip now to Kansas City, number one seed in the playoffs, number one seed in the AFC, potential MVP favorite in Patrick Mahomes, Andy Reid, Eric Bieniemy, the offense, best tight end in the game with Travis Kelsey. They lost Tyreek Hill, didn't matter. Juju Smith-Schuster, Valdez Scantley. Everybody stepped up when it mattered most. Traded for Kadarius Toney. Sky Moore is there as well on special teams and sometimes on certain third down uh, situations and formations. The point of what I'm getting at is the Chiefs are such overwhelming favorites that it's like people are saying that it's not feasible. It's not possible. The only point I'm trying to say is if Jacksonville were to start this game off hot, I wouldn't be surprised if they kind of gave the Chiefs a run for their money because of how much they have struggled this season against lesser teams. For whatever reason, if that defense can't stop Trevor, and if Jacksonville's defense continues to ride that second half that they had, they can't start off slow against this team. The Chiefs, when that offense gets going, they're damn near next to impossible to stop, especially Patrick Mahomes. If you can find a way to maybe force a turnover, get a couple of three and outs here, give Trevor Lawrence the ball and that offense to get into a rhythm, despite being in enemy territory, this game will be a lot closer than, than people think. I think this is going to be a very impressive game. If it ends up being a blowout, it's not going to be a surprise. I'm just saying I can't just sit here and rule out the possibility of Jacksonville making this a game. Yes, I have the Chiefs winning. I don't think it's going to be by three or anything like that. I think it's going to be by comfortable margin, like seven to ten points. It just depends on how Jacksonville is going to approach this game. You have to be conservative with the ball, but you also cannot, cannot turn the ball over against this football team. You give Pat more attempts, that's going to be points on the board without a doubt. And that just means that defense for Jacksonville is going to be on the field a lot more, which means Patrick Mahomes is going to completely take advantage, maybe run the clock out with the, the tandem that they have in that backfield, the three-headed monster with Alaire, Pachero, Pachenko, whatever the hell his name is. And then, of course, you have uh, McKinnon in that backfield as well. So I'm going to give the Jags the benefit of the doubt here and say that they're going to be competitive. The end result will be the Chiefs moving on to the AFC Championship, but Jacksonville will make a statement and make a name for themselves to let people know this is going to continue and they're going to make a name for themselves in the future moving forward. I just want to make two quick points uh, about really how both these teams, I think, are going to play out this game. Uh, one is with Jacksonville. So I think if they're smart, you know, they really focus on sustaining long drives, keeping Pat on the sideline and owning the time of possession because that has been one formula of success that has gone against the Chiefs, meaning we've seen teams in the past be able to dominate time of possession and keep that Chiefs offense on the sideline and it actually work out for the opposing team going up against the Chiefs. Now, with Jacksonville, obviously that means you know you have to score touchdowns instead of settling for field goals. If you start settling for field goals against Casey, it ain't going to work out because that Chiefs offense, especially when they get in rhythm, they can march down the field 75, 80 yards within five to six plays. And, you know, you get a touchdown put up against you in literally about two to three minutes. And sometimes even quicker than that, just depending on how efficient that Chiefs offense can be. So the Jags got to limit their turnovers. They have to get touchdowns and not settle for field goals and then hope that that defense can hold up because you're not going to be able to stop that KC offense. The best that they could do is just try to contain them as best as they can. Now to flip it to KC. There's one person I want to focus on that they could potentially be an X-Factor, and that is Kadarius Tony. 
I like the way that Casey utilizes him in specific packages. Whenever they throw him in motion, whenever the uh, Casey's in the shotgun, I guarantee you at least 50 to 75% of the time, he's going to get the ball. Pat is going to get it, pitch it to him, and they'll let Kadarius Tony use his speed to get to the outside, get to the edge. And hell, if he makes one or two guys miss, you know, you're talking about taking a five, seven yard run to potentially a 10 to 15, 20 yard run. And obviously, he's one of their speedsters that he's one of the guys that they traded for earlier in the year. And I think they found a way to integrate him into that offense pretty solidly. And I think the way that they utilize him in that game, I think is going to be pivotal because they're going to use him in jet sweeps. They're going to use him in wide receiver screens and they could use him on like these 10 to 15 yard posts, slants, whatever may have you in that game. So obviously I know Travis is going to get a lot of attention just simply because he's their number one target in Casey's offense. Don't be surprised if Kadarius has a good game though. I know he's probably like third or fourth in the depth chart in their wide receiver core, but he's somebody that I'm going to focus on because he could potentially break out some big plays, get some huge chunk plays for Casey as a whole. No, I I couldn't agree more. Honestly, obviously, you know, being a UF fan, Kadarius Tony is someone that I've seen break open plays a multitude of times. So I couldn't agree more with that statement because he definitely can make people miss and they can utilize him on special teams for whatever reason. If Sky Moore has an off night or he starts to struggle, the man ran back plenty of kickoffs and punts in college. So they have a, a pretty dual threat, not dual threat, but they have a very deadly weapon if utilized correctly, which we all know that the enemy and Andy Reid will. And trust me, they will exploit his versatility and use it against Jacksonville at all costs. They just have to get him in the right package, going up against the right defense, and he could take it from there. But with that said, we are going to flip it to the NFC. So this will be the second game that's going to be featured on Saturday. This will be the Saturday night game, and it's going to be a NFC East battle featuring the New York Giants and the Philadelphia Eagles. Just to give you guys a quick recap of how we got to this point for both teams, we'll start with the Eagles. They are the home team. Uh, they claimed the number one seed in the NFC, so they had the only buy in the NFC. So that's pretty much pretty simple when it comes to the Eagles that didn't play last week. But when it comes to the Giants, the Giants went on the road and defeated the Vikings, depending on who you ask. That could have been an upset. I think a lot of people kind of had a very weird feeling about the Vikings, kind of a fraud, depending on who you ask, even though that they had a really good record. But nonetheless, the Giants went on the road, looked incredible against the Vikings last week, and they advanced to the NFC Divisional Round, where they will up, go up against the Eagles for the third time this year. And seeing the way that these divisional games have been played, I know we saw a couple of divisional games in the wild card round last week, and some of those games were pretty competitive. So there is definitely a possibility that this game between the Eagles and the Giants could be a competitive when these two teams go at it on Saturday. So, Kev, to kick this one to you, we've got the Giants going to Philadelphia to play the Eagles on Saturday night in a divisional game in the divisional round. Who do you think is going to come out on top and why? So I've been debating this game internally for days, like literally arguing with myself, talking about it, looking up numbers, trying to figure out a reason to make a definitive decision. And I think I've come to the conclusion. I think the Giants are going to upset the Eagles. It's a bold statement. A lot of people think I'm crazy. People think that, it, you know, oh, they beat the Vikings. They're not that impressive. Listen, I said this last week, as did NFL Network apparently today or yesterday. Taking my damn content. I see what you're doing. Um, 
I think the Giants are making a statement. I think the Giants are getting hot at the right time. I think the Eagles ended the season on a bad note with how they performed against the Giants. And with that week of rest, that could provide to be an X factor in and of itself because they could have a little bit of rust. They could start off a little bit slow. I mean, Lane Johnson is playing the right tackle for the Eagles, but he's not 100%. I think that they dial up some blitz packages, stack up that right side, make him have to work for it. And if they pressure Jalen Hurts, who we already know is limited with that shoulder, we don't know how effective he's going to be. I think that that's going to pose a, a big issue because if he's not able to get into a rhythm, and by he, I mean Jalen Hurts, with the RPO, if the run game cannot be established, I think that this offense is going to have to lean on Jalen Hurts to make every single throw and every single play. And with him being injured, the offensive line not being 100%, that could pose to be an issue. I understand that Minnesota had the league's worst offensive line, if not one of them, and the Eagles statistically have one of the better offensive lines. But as of recency... The Eagles' offensive line has not played well. Gardner Minshew was under pressure in both games he started. Jalen Hurts was under pressure against the Giants as well. If Lane Johnson is at 75%, 80%, that is still going to be a weakened offensive tackle on that right side that has obviously been the most reliable tackle, arguably in football, over the course of the last 8 to 10 years, however long Lane's been in the league, that's going to be a problem. They're going to line up Kayvon Thibodeau out there. They're going to put pressure on the inside with Leonard Williams and, of course, Dexter, Dexter Lawrence. We know that the corners for the Giants played up against Minnesota when they needed to because Adoree Jackson did what he needed to do as well as the other corners that support him to contain Justin Jefferson. We all know that Justin Jefferson is better than A.J. Brown, but in terms of physicality, that jump ball may not be as easy, or excuse me, as difficult as it was because A.J. Brown is just a, a dominant force out there in one-on-one coverage. If this Giants defense can find a way to create three and outs and pressure on Jalen Hurts, I think with the Eagles' lack of rush defense between Daniel Jones being mobile and Saquon Barkley, for whatever reason, being on an absolute mission, I think that they eat up the time of possession in this game because you cannot dial back and have Daniel Jones throw the ball almost 40 times against the, the arguably the best secondary in football with Bradbury Slay, if Garner Johnson is available for this game, and so on and so forth. The linebackers in this game are going to be critical as well because you are going to see Daniel Jones rely on the tight end in the middle of the field. As, the, as they love to play man coverage, you're going to have to run a lot of mis, misdirection routes. I mean, a lot of crossers, a lot of slants. You're going to have to make these linebackers cover. And we all know that Isaiah Hodges or Hodgins um, showed out in Minnesota last week. But again, Minnesota's defense is not the Eagles' defense. I will switch it to Philly on how Philly is going to win. Philly has to take advantage and get Jalen Hurts into that rhythm. Get him into a couple of easy throws. Let him get comfortable. Let him feel like he's back in, a, in some kind of a groove. Get A.J. Brown his targets to get him involved. And then, of course, as the double team approaches, which we all know that it will, you got to start attacking other receivers. He sometimes becomes one-dimensional and he starts to feed A.J. too much. Then you, you start to lose track of Dallas Goddard, you start to forget that you also have the availability of Quez Watkins and the vertical threat. And then, of course, you have Devontae Smith. We all know he's probably one of the better route runners in the league. So they have to take advantage and distribute this ball evenly, and you have to run the ball with Miles Sanders. You cannot just have Jalen, similar to what I said about Daniel, you cannot have him drop back and throw that ball 40 times. You need to get him into a groove and you cannot also have him putting himself out there with that shoulder injury with the consistent RPO quarterback sneaks draws whatever it is that Sirianni likes to dial up you have to be cautious 
because it, I know it's the playoffs and it, it's win or go home. If he gets hurt in that first half, that first quarter, that first drive, you're done. Your your hopes and dreams are, are gone with Jalen Hurts. I'm not saying it's going to be a blowout. I think this game is going to come down to the absolute wire. We have seen New York do this before, especially in 2007. They went to Dallas. They beat the number one seed. Ironically enough, it, it's a divisional opponent again at this point. We've seen Daniel Jones make big plays when need be, and Saquon Barkley is that guy. If they keep the ball away from that offense, if that defense can pressure the quarterback, I think the Philadelphia gets upset because they're just not ready for it. We've seen them play down to certain opponents. We've seen them lose to teams they shouldn't have lost to. Especially with this week off, it could help or hinder them. And in this case, I think it's going to give them a little bit of rust. Daniel's going to get into a hot start. And I think that the Giants are going to move on to the NFC Championship. Yeah, I feel kind of the same way. I was kind of split about this game simply just because it is a divisional game. And seeing how the Giants played against the Vikings last week, they were impressive, especially from an offensive perspective, because the Vikings, granted, they have one of the worst defenses in the NFL. They couldn't find an answer to slow down that Giants offense. And, you know, the Giants are putting up 30 plus points against you when you're the home team. That's a bad look for the Vikings. But I'm actually going to go the opposite way here. I am going to pick the Eagles. Very similar to how you outlined. It's going to be a very competitive game. Uh, typically, when we see these divisional games, I'm not talking about the divisional round. I'm just talking about where two teams from the same division have played each other in the playoffs this year. They've been very competitive. Uh, we had the Bengals and the Ravens last week. Went down to the wire. The Bills and the Dolphins last week. That was a crazy shootout game. I think with this one, it's going to be competitive like those other games. But I still am going to favor the Eagles simply just because I think they have some advantages over the Giants. And I don't think the Giants are going to be as successful against the Eagles as a whole as they were last week to the Vikings. So I'm going with the Eagles simply because I just have more faith that the Eagles are going to be able to establish consistency on the offensive side of the ball like the Vikings were able to do against the Giants last week. But the biggest thing for me is the Eagles defense is going to play miles better than what the Vikings were last week. Like I already said, the Vikings have one of the worst defenses in the NFL. When it comes to the Eagles, the Eagles have a much better defense. And I think overall, they will do a much better job to be able to contain this Giants offense that did put up 30-plus last week. My biggest thing when it comes to the Eagles defense is I think their game plan is going to be very simple. Stack the box, contain Saquon Barkley, and force Daniel Jones to beat you and granted I will give Daniel Jones credit he went on the road last week and proved to be the quarterback that honestly hasn't really shown me to be up until this point in his career he went on the road he played a plus football and made the plays that needed to be made when you compare that to the rest of his career up to this point he hasn't really done that consistently so I'll give him credit there but going up against the Eagles and that defense on the road with that hostile environment that Philly brings game in and game out with their fans. I think it's going to be a much more pressurized situation for Daniel Jones. And I think there's a potential that he's going to slip up in this game. I'm not saying he's going to be the sole reason why the Giants lose this game. He may have a turnover in this game. And it could prove to be a significant one that could really swing the momentum in Philly's favor. So my thing is, if the Eagles are going to be smart defensively, stack the box, contain Saquon, because 
that Giants offense, when they're running and gunning, it's usually because Saquon is that primary factor for their offense. And when he's ripping off 10 to 15 yards a chunk, like he was against the Vikings last week, that's a tough offense to stop, especially the way that they use Daniel Jones in that RPO-style offense. So Eagles defense has a very clear agenda as far as I'm concerned going with this game plan. When it comes to the Eagles and their offense, uh, they have to reestablish uh, some rhythm, especially knowing how that last game of the regular season played out against the Giants. They didn't look good. Jalen, that was his first game back uh, after sustaining, I think it was a shoulder injury a couple weeks prior, and he definitely looked rusty. He just looked like the offense was out of sorts. The timing was off. And hopefully that this past week off, uh, since they had the number one seed in the NFC, they'll be in a better position to be able to go out and essentially attack this Giants defense, which I will say this about the Giants defense. When they actually go up against a decent offense, they have actually been known to struggle. The fact that they gave up 24 points to the Vikings last week, and the Vikings have a pretty good offense, that was a little bit of a cause of concern for me because I didn't think that the Vikings, albeit they did lose that game, they were able to march up and down on the field for like 75 to 80% of the game. So that game ended up being a lot more of a shootout than I think people anticipated just because that Giants defense has been stingy this year. But I think this is one of those games where I think that Giants defense could step up to make this game a lower scoring game uh, than what we saw last week. But I still believe that this Eagles offense has the requisite pieces to go out there and get some decent drives and not just drives to get field goals on the board. I'm talking about touchdowns. And that really is the, na the name of the game here. And I think that Jalen Hurts is going to be able to connect with A.J. Brown on a consistent basis. The same goes with Devontae Smith. I wouldn't be surprised if they take some deep shots with Quez Watkins because, like you said, Kev, he is really their vertical threat on that offense. And he could take the top off of a defense because he can burn past uh, some corners and some safeties when matched up one-on-one -on -one against them. So, and also just to kind of talk about the run game, I think when their run game is effective with the Eagles, they're a tough offense to stop. I uh, Simply just because, very similar to what Daniel Jones and Saquon run with the Giants offense, the Eagles can run it with Jalen Hurts and Miles Sanders. And I think that's also going to be a big point of emphasis as well. They need to run the ball effectively to get the Giants into a situation where they don't really know what to expect. Because if both Jalen is good in the passing game and the running back committee is effective in the run game, that's going to be a tough formula for the Giants to stop. So overall, I just favor the Eagles to be a little bit more effective in their decision-making in this game compared to the Giants. I think they just have a better overall chance to win this game, albeit in a very close one, and advance to the NFC Championship game. So, going with the Eagles, I'm going to say they win this one by about, I'm going to say like four points. I think it's going to be a very close game. It's going to be a fun game. I'm really anticipating this game to be one of the best games of the weekend. But I'm going to say that the Eagles win this one by the score of 24-20. to 20. They advance to the NFC Championship game where they'll play eventually either the Cowboys or or the 49ers. And I think that will set up a pretty solid NFC championship as far as I see it. But I got the Eagles in this one, and they will advance. I know that my girl and her family, if they hear this, they're probably going to be like, don't even come over. I'm supposed to go to... Traitor. Traitor. I'm, I'm supposed to go to their house, obviously, on Saturday night to watch the game with basically everybody, but Isabel, because she works. Um, And, dude, I... I I have to I have to go with my gut, man. It's not a New York thing as much as I want to make it that. I just I have a weird gut feeling. 
again, I have these 07 vibes. I'm not saying they're going to go to the Super Bowl and win it like they did, but it's just there's too many similar factors from these runs of getting hot at the right time and, and, and having the, the awkward quarterback that struggled at the tail end of the season that ended up playing significantly better in the playoffs and the defense that came out of nowhere that stepped up when they needed to. I, the, the coaching staff, I mean, we all know Tom Coughlin was way more established than Brian Dable at that point in their careers, but it's just, to me, way too similar, way too coincidental, and it's just it, it's weird for me. Well, I, I have to ask you this. You know, obviously, I, I know you're going with your gut here. Are you basing that off of what you saw last week against the Vikings? Or is it just based off of the last couple of weeks, the way that the Giants have played? Obviously, the one game being against the Eagles in the last game of the year. And I just, I was wondering if like a little bit of a prisoner of the moment is potentially working. I think, I think it's for me, it's a combination of both, right? So you played them with your backups in reference to the last time they played the Eagles. Mm -hmm. I think that that showed the Eagles can be had. I think that that gave them enough of an insight, not that they're going to run the same players or that they have an insight as to what they're going to call. But you say this as well as I do divisional opponents in the playoffs are some of the best games. Obviously, statistically proven, last week was an example. You know them the best. Mm -hmm. You saw them struggle against your backups. What makes you think when Saquon is inserted and Daniel Jones is inserted that this isn't going to be 10 times more competitive? What makes me believe that the Giants are going to be able to do it? Yes, albeit the Vikings had a terrible defense. The offense couldn't get into a rhythm. The offensive line is horrible. But again, it's it, you have to still win. It's the playoffs, yeah. right? You're in enemy territory. You still have to go out there and get the dub. None of them, in terms of none of the offensive players, played in a postseason game. That was their first game, and they won. They have no playoff experience at meaningful positions at the wide receiver core. Who? Tight end? Who? Saquon Barkley's been injured the last few two years. Daniel Jones he didn't get a fifth-year option picked up. Known for turnovers. He's about to get a contract extension. The quarterback played well when it needed to be. All I'm saying is you need that click in your head at the right time. And it's usually right before the postseason. In this case, he had the click in a playoff game, which is even more of a confidence booster. Your team's rally behind you. Defense is playing great. The run game is there. Yes, the Eagles will be more competitive. I agree. A turnover is probably going to happen, whether that be a fumble, a strip sack, something of that sort, because Daniel Jones is going to be up against the best pass rush in the league. So at this point, it's going to be very competitive. Get the ball out quick. Get it to Saquon. And if they're going to stack that box, you know for a fact that's man coverage. That's all the Eagles run anyway. It's going to be a really, really good game. But I still, I, I don't know what it is, man. This is going to come down to either a late field goal or who turns the ball over first. No, I, I think that that's fair. It's just, for me, if I had to bank on the guy who's going to make a mistake first with the quarterbacks between Jalen and Daniel, I'm going to go with Daniel just because the track record kind of supports that. Now, in this year specifically, it's been a little bit different because Daniel has been better, but not better than Jalen. Only five turnovers. I mean, I think only five interceptions or something like that, but he only had 15 passing touchdowns, so it's it's give and get, you know? Yeah, and, and I will say that the primary, reason, the primary reason why I think the Giants have been successful this year, it's been basically on the backs of their defense. Their defense has been very good this year. Um, and that's despite the fact that you have a brand new head coach in Brian Dable, who's more offensive oriented, but nonetheless has been able to get the Giants into a point where they made the playoffs and could potentially even make an NFC championship game, which in his first year, if he were to do that, I mean, that's absolutely phenomenal for Brian. But 
even though that I had this game being very competitive uh, for both teams, I'm just going to give a slight edge to the Eagles just because I think the Eagles have just been, been a better team this year, albeit that last game uh, to get the number one seed. It didn't look good. Definitely looked like the offense was out of sorts. But if I had to say, I, I just favor them a little bit more. But this is going to be a great game nonetheless, especially with this being a divisional matchup where these two teams are playing for the third time against each other. So I think it's going to be a pretty solid game when it takes place on Saturday night. So, I mean, do you want to take this next one? You want me to take this one? I mean, it's completely up to you. I know we've been well, going back and forth lately. Well, I think I'm going to pass you this one. So, because we get to talk about your boy, Joseph. Boy, what do you, come on. It's more than just Joseph. Joseph Burrow. There you go. So I know this is probably going to be another tough pick for you, knowing that this is your boy, but they're going up against a pretty difficult team of Buffalo. So uh, just to give you guys a setup here uh, for the Sunday game, that I believe this is the first Sunday matchup uh, that we'll see. It is going to be a matchup of the two and the three seed. That is going to be the Cincinnati Bengals going on the road to play the Buffalo Bills. To give you guys the run up to this game, uh, we'll start with the Bengals. Um, they are the number three seed. Had a pretty competitive battle in that wild card round against the Baltimore Ravens last week. Um, I will say that the Ravens damn near completed a Hail Mary at the end of that game. That could have made that game quite interesting at the last second. But uh, that did not happen for the Ravens, unfortunately for them. The Bengals advanced in a very competitive wild card game to get to this divisional round. When it comes to Buffalo, Buffalo had quite the game against Miami that that game went up down sideways side to side I mean however you want to describe it Buffalo really kind of went on a roller coaster ride in that game but Buffalo was able to escape with a three-point victory against a third string quarterback in Skylar Thompson uh, they won that game by the score of 34 to 31 obviously turnovers kind of reared their ugly head uh, against Buffalo in that game and that's something that I imagine Kevin and I will talk about at length uh, when we get to the analysis, but nonetheless, Bengals bills. This is going to be a great game. Probably the best game that we have on the slate this weekend, simply just because you got Josh Allen and Joe Burrow going at it to potentially advance to an ASU championship game. That's going to be a phenomenal game, no matter how you slice it or dice it. So Kevin, to kick this one to you, we've got the Bengals going on the road to Buffalo to play the bills in this AFC divisional round matchup this weekend. Who do you think is going to advance to the AFC Championship game and why? Another game, like I said before, uh, that I've been debating back and forth with and thinking about. Unfortunately, I have to go against my boy because Kyle and I did make the prediction that Buffalo was going to win the Super Bowl this year. I'm going to stand by that statement because I firmly believe that Josh Allen is one of the best quarterbacks in the league. I feel like this defense is going to find a way to adjust. And I also feel like this is not going to be the same game that they had against Miami. I don't think that Cincinnati has the pass rush that Miami did. I don't think that Cincinnati is going to be able to make Josh turn the ball over as much as he did. I mean, Cincinnati struggled against a backup quarterback as well. Cincinnati has injuries on the offensive line as well. Now I know what you're thinking. Josh Allen was sacked seven times last week too. Joe Burrow was sacked four times. He was hit six times. He was pressured throughout the game. They couldn't run the ball at all. We all know Buffalo was able to shut Miami's rush deep rush offense as well in terms of limiting them in, in, uh, in rushing yards per carry as well as total. So I think that that's a perfect formula. Fix up some of those mistakes. 
clean up some of those play calls to 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 put Josh in those bad situations, and you have yourself a great game. I think that the wide receiver matchups are great across the board. You have Stephon Diggs on one side, Jamar Chase on the other, Dawson Knox, Hayden Hurst, Joe Mixon, Singletary. I mean, it, it's going to be a great game no matter what. I just think that Buffalo's defense is better than Cincinnati's, and I think that with the injuries to the offensive line, Joe Burrow is going to struggle. I think Joe Burrow is going to have a turnover of his own, if not two. I think that they're going to be struggling to rush that ball and create a run game of sorts because they just they weren't they have not been able to get Joe Mixon into a rhythm over the course of the last few weeks. I think that, of course, as I've said the last couple of weeks, uh, last month or so, the Demar Hamlin situation has Buffalo riding a high, a, a motivational factor, so to speak, and I think that they are going to try to win this year for him, as well as for their own aspirations. I mean, you obviously aim every year to win a Super Bowl, but when you have something like that in your corner, an emotional support system, whatever you want to call it, that pushes you a little bit extra. And then when you have a game as bad as Josh Allen did last week against a team he should not have struggled against, I think mentally he's going to look at it and say, I can't mess this up again. I can't have errors like I did last week. I want to face Patrick Mahomes in that next round. I want to go to a Super Bowl. I want to show everybody that I can be that quarterback. And, you know, we all know that Joe Burrow has the capabilities, but we all know that that offensive line you live and die by. So if you're going to be pressured and, and you're going to be if you're hurting like that all game, I think that that's going to be the formula for, for failure. And if you're going to sit there and ask Joe to throw that ball 40 to 50 times, that's just more dropbacks for him to get pressured, potentially hurt and hit. And um, if you become one dimensional, you just drop back everybody into zone coverage and watch him make some mistakes. So. Um, again, this was a tough pick for me. I think that Buffalo wins a close one as well. I think it's going to be somewhere along the lines of maybe 6 to 10 points, 7 to 10 points, because Buffalo might pull away, depending on what happens. But I got the Bills advancing to the AFC Championship. I think this is going to be a consistency over the next 5 to 10 years. You're going to see this rotate between Burrow, Mahomes, and Allen on a consistent basis. We had Mahomes versus Burrow last year, and we may even get Mahomes versus Allen this year in another rematch. But as of right now, in this divisional game, I have the Bills moving forward into the AFC Championship. Showing no loyalty to your boy whatsoever. How I'm showing loyalty. You? I'm showing loyalty to my initial preseason pick. I'm not changing up. I I firmly stand by it. How are you gonna go against your boy like that? How? I think I I said I said why? Don't fuck with me right now. <laughs> Just play it. But no, um. Kev, I'm with you 100% on this one. I'm going with the Bills uh, in a very competitive game. Uh, I think this has the potential to be the best game of the weekend as far as I see it. And like I said at the lead-up, when you got Joe Burrow going up against Josh Allen, I mean, that's going to bring in TV ratings unlike anything that we probably will see this uh, this upcoming regular, not regular, but postseason stretch. But no, for this game, I'm going with the Bills. I think it's going to be a close one nonetheless, though. So one of the things that I want to focus on with the Bills here is their turnovers. Their turnovers have been the biggest impediment for this team the entire year. The Bills are one of the best teams in the NFL, not only the AFC, just the NFL to a larger extent. But one of their biggest slowdowns has been they've been way too turnover prone this year. And I mean, we could take last week, for example, but I mean, Last week was really just kind of, it was just another example of the entire season has been predicated on so many turnovers. Even though this team is successful and they're one of the best teams in the NFL, it's just, it is kind of crazy to look at this team and it's like, yeah, they're succeeding, but it's like, 
there's something still missing. Like they're not running and gunning at like the highest degree possible simply just because they're making so many mistakes game in and game out. And a lot of that is predicated on Josh Allen. Josh Allen has had multiple turnovers in the red zone this year. And, you know, there's a good chance that that could actually happen again going up against the Bengals. It's just, even though that I'm picking the Bills, it's just like they have to fix their turnover issue. And if they don't, that issue could rear its ugly head and really swing the momentum in favor of the Bengals in this game. And that's really one of the things that I want to mention. If the Bengals are going to win this game, it's going to be because they're going to force not one turnover, but they could potentially force multiple turnovers against the Bills. And trust me, Joe Burrow leading that offense could definitely put points up on the board against the Bills in that game. However, like you said, Kev, I do think that Josh Allen and that Bills offense, they are going to make those adjustments from last week and avoid those turnovers that really stymied them as a whole in that second half. Because, I mean, there was at one point the Dolphins were winning that game in the second half, and then Josh Allen and that offense finally got it together, and the defense stepped up to make some plays at the end uh, to get them that win. But, you know, you cannot have those mistakes going up against Joe Burrow and the Bengals because the Bengals as a whole, they're one of the hottest teams in the league right now. They won the AFC North. They pretty much had one of the best second half season performances compared to any other team. And they beat some really good teams along the way, including the number one seed in the Chiefs. So the Bills know what they're going up against. And as far as I see it, you know, obviously the offense has to limit the turnovers, but defensively, I think they have to bring that pass rush home against Joe Burrow. And I will say with the offensive line issues, once again, stymieing the Bengals. This has kind of been just a repeat issue for the Bengals since Joe Burrow's arrived to Cincinnati. Their offensive line is always dealing with some sort of issue. Last year, they couldn't protect him in any way, shape, or form. This year, it seems to be their offensive line just can't avoid injuries. And unfortunately, the injury bug has plagued them. And honestly, I think that's why that factored in the reason why they were so close to losing to the Ravens last week. The Ravens really gave them a run for their money last week and damn near beat them in the process. So I think if the Bills are smart, they try to get that pass rush home. If they can't sack him, get the hurries, get the pressures, try to get in Joe Burrow's face to force some errant passes, and then maybe some turnovers can fall in favor of the Bills. You know, I think that's really going to be the name of the game here for that Bills defense. And I think they have the tenacity and they have the requisite pieces to be able to do that. Obviously, if they had Von Miller, I think it would be better. But not having him in the roster simply because of that torn ACL injury that he sustained. You know, they're going to have to find different pieces to come up and make those plays. So I think Matt Milano could definitely bring an impact. I wouldn't be surprised if uh, Jordan Poyer is great in the secondary as well. He's one of the best safeties in the league. And I wouldn't be surprised if he could get his hands on a turnover in that game as well. But I think this is going to be a great game. It's going to come down to the wire. I think this is going to be one of those games where who's going to have the ball last. I think Josh Allen and the Bills are going to be in that position. I think they're going to get possibly the game-winning touchdown or game-winning field goal to settle it. And then I think the Bills will advance to the AFC Championship game. I have them winning this game by about three or four points. If I had to put a score on it, I'm going to say they win this one by the score of 30-27. to I think this is going to be a relatively high-scoring game. I think both offenses are going to be able to move the ball up and down the field. It's just, I think the Bills are just going to squeak by in this one to get to the AFC Championship game where... I think more than likely they will probably play the Kansas City Chiefs unless the Jags pull off one of the upsets of the year 
and beat Kansas City on the road. But more than likely, I think we'll have a uh, a KC and Buffalo AFC Championship game to decide who's going to go to the Super Bowl to represent the AFC. That's just how I see it. No matter what, must-see television. Allen versus Burrow, period. That's it. That's all you need to know. Even if you don't watch football, know about football, people typically tend to pick up football during the playoffs anyway, maybe usually the Super Bowl. But, I mean, if, if, if anything, right, if the Super Bowl ends up being ass, this is going to be a variation of the Super Bowl because of the potency of this offense, because of the types of quarterbacks you're looking at. It is literally both of these quarterbacks or you can make an argument for a top three spot. You can make an argument all of them can be number two because we all know Patrick Mahomes is number one. Mm -hmm. But once again, got to see this game. But there is another game we have to cover, and that is going to be the Cowboys and the 49ers. The Cowboys, albeit it was the Buccaneers, they shook off that narrative that they cannot win on the road in the playoffs. They found a way to not only win but dominate the Buccaneers in every way, shape, or form, in every facet. Dak Prescott gets another victory. But when you flip it to the other side, 49ers kind of played with their food a little bit. You know, they kind of like let the Seahawks gain a little bit of momentum, got a little bit of confidence. DK Metcalf had himself a good game. And then they said, you know what? I'm tired of playing. I'm bored. Let's go spank that ass. And the 49ers went out there and they dominated like we all know that they had the potential to from the beginning. Christian McCaffrey had a good game. The rookie Brock Purdy continues to win. So this is shaping up to be a pretty solid game. So Kyle, I'm going to ask you, does Dak Prescott continue the success that they had last week? Or does Brock Purdy continue to ride this wave and carry this defense into an NFC championship berth? Oh, I'm going with the 49ers all day in this one. I think when it comes to the 49ers, I think they're the best team in the playoffs right now, simply just from an overall team perspective. The way that their offense has been running with Brock Purdy as a starting quarterback, they haven't skipped the beat. And as far as I see it, I mean... Kev, he hasn't lost a game yet. In relief for Jimmy G, he's been nothing short of phenomenal. And you tie that with what the defense does, basically on a game-in, game-out basis. I'd be hard-pressed to pick any other team to go up against the 49ers right now and beat them. And even though the Cowboys, they have a shot to win this game, I just don't see it happening in this one. And I will say, you know, when it comes to the Cowboys, they had a phenomenal performance last week against the Buccaneers. Honestly, that may have been one of the best games I've seen Dak Prescott play. And I will say that the Bucks defense this year, they showed flashes of being a really good defense and just Dak took them apart. Dak was phenomenal in that game. He was able to hit pretty much a wide range of targets, no matter who it was, consistently throughout the game. And the Bucks had no answer. But this is a different beast entirely with the Cowboys going going up against the 49ers. The 49ers probably had the best defense in the league right now. If you don't think that they're the best defense in the league, you have to consider them in like the top two or top three, depending on who you ask, because this defense is special. They have the pass rush. They have the linebacking core. They have a good secondary. All three levels of that defense, they have that tenacity. They have that grit, and they can force turnovers at will. And knowing Dak Prescott being one of the more turnover-prone quarterbacks this year, I would not be surprised if that 49ers defense forces multiple turnovers against Dallas in this game. And to kick it to Brock Purdy in the offense, I think going up against this Cowboys defense, even though that the Cowboys defense was phenomenal last week against Tampa, 
they win up against Tampa. Tampa's offense has been inconsistent the entire year. Brock Purdy leading this 49ers offense, they've been extremely consistent the entire year. And honestly, you could say that no matter who's been the quarterback for them, the 49ers, when they're running and gunning on offense, I don't know if there's any other team that could stop them. And last week, they proved it once again that they can really attack a defense in any way, shape, or form. Whether it was Brock passing the ball, whether it was the run game in Christian McCaffrey, whether it was Debo Samuel getting involved, like it didn't really matter. That 49ers offense was able to make plays and make them consistently to the point where they scored over 40 points and they had over 500 yards of total offense against Seattle. Now, I don't think they'll be as successful as they were last week going up against the Cowboys because I think the Cowboys are going to present a bigger challenge than Seattle did last week, but not to the point where I think the 49ers are at a chance of losing this game. I think the 49ers, they're just too strong of a team, and I think they'll be able to effectively win this game on the offensive side of the ball and the defensive side of the ball. I just don't see Dallas going on the road in that environment against that team and coming away with probably one of the more shocking upsets that we could potentially see in the playoffs. I just don't think it will happen. So overall, I've got the 49ers advancing to the NFC Championship game. If I had to put a score on it, I will say that they win this one by about 7 to maybe 10 points. I think there is a chance that this game could be a 14-point win for the 49ers. I'm not going to go to that extent. I think if they really force a decent amount of turnovers against the Cowboys, then maybe it trends in that direction. But I'm going to go up with the safer pick here. I think they win by about 7 to 10 points. If I had to put a score on it, I'm going to say they win this one by the score of 34 to 24 like I said, I, I think the 49ers are one of the best teams in the playoffs right now. To me, I think they are the best team in the playoffs right now. And I think they have a really good shot to make the Super Bowl with the roster that they have. This team is loaded. I don't think the Cowboys are going to be able to stop it. And who knows? There may not be a team that could slow the 49ers down at this point. That's how good they are. And I think they will advance to the NFC Championship game because of that. So. I'm going to mirror my partner here. I have absolutely 0% chance of the Dallas Cowboys coming out victorious. And people want to make the argument, well, you know, the Giants beat the, the Vikings, and the Vikings are one of the worst defensive teams in the league. You beat arguably the worst offensive team in the entire postseason. You beat a 45-year-old diminishing Tom Brady. You beat an offensive line that has been riddled with injuries and arguably, if not factually, the worst offensive tackle in the NFL, you beat the worst rushing attack in the NFL. I don't. You beat the only team in the postseason that had an under 500 record. Congratulations. You beat a road opponent. That road opponent happened to be the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. If you are going to critique the Giants, you got to be able to take the criticism yourself. That offense hasn't been able to get into a rhythm whatsoever all season long. The offensive line hasn't been able to protect Tom Brady. And there have been flashes to show that Tom Brady has finally started to take a slight decline. Now, what this is not about the Buccaneers. I'm just letting everybody know. Dallas beat a pretty shitty team in Tampa. This is not a shitty team. This is the best team in the postseason. Yes, they are led by a rookie, but they also have the league's best defense right behind them. They also have the league's probably brightest offensive mind in Kyle Shanahan, who has shown, I can do this with anybody, Jimmy G, Trey Lance, a rookie, Brock Purdy, the last pick in the draft. I will continue to remind people, Mr. Irrelevant, 
He's he's successful. Anybody can be successful in this offense. Hey, Christian McCaffrey, potential comeback player of the year. Yeah, he's he's back. He's a hundred percent. Hey, Debo Samuel, one of the most dynamic playmakers in the league. Yeah, yeah, uh, he's healthy. Oh, George Kittle, one of the best tight ends right behind Travis Kelsey in the entire NFL. Oh, that's right, they have him too. Oh, uh, uh, there's somebody else I'm forgetting. Oh, he has a brother. He plays for the chart. Oh, that's right. The defensive player of the year, Nick Bo. Yeah, he's there too. Stop me when I, when I get annoying because it, this is the point I'm trying to make. Dallas is up against a juggernaut. Dallas is going to try to ride this emotional high. There's not, a, there, there's not an emotional high to ride. You beat a crappy team. Dak Prescott leads the league or is tied for the league in turnovers in terms of interceptions. 23 touchdowns, 15 interceptions. It's a pretty bad ratio if you ask me. Oh, well, he missed five games. You know, that could have evened out or that could have gotten even worse. So the argument goes back and forth. If is a very big word when it comes to sports because it's 50% positive, 50% negative. Now the running attack is going to struggle. Tony Pollard and Ezekiel Elliott are one of the best duo running backs in terms of um, thunder and lightning because Zeke is a downhill runner and Tony Pollard is more of an outside pass catcher as well. But he eclipsed the thousand yard mark. So shout out to Tony Pollard. Uh, San Francisco has the best rush defense in the NFL. Point blank period. So good luck with that. And at the end of the day, I think that Prescott is going to have at least a turnover or two. I think that they are going to absolutely annihilate that offensive line in a multitude of different ways. They have multiple blitz packages. They have multiple pass rushers that can get open uh, or get to the quarterback on -on one-on-one coverage. I mean, D'Amico Ryans has this defense swarming, active, and just alert in all facets of the word. So yes, they started slow last week. I think if Dallas gets into a rhythm early, it could pose to be a threat because this is not the Seattle Seahawks and Geno Smith. Dak Prescott showed last week that he can lead an offense. Again, I will preview that with this being one of the worst defense, with one of the worst teams in the league and getting multiple opportunities. But the Bucks defense—that is no no chump defense. They're definitely a little bit better than average. So I will say that that was an impressive feat. San Francisco needs to assert their dominance at the beginning of this game. They need to find a way to create a turnover or keep Dak off of his game. Because if you leave this defense on the field long enough, like anything else, yes, they are number one. They will get tired. Time of possession will start to increase. The offense for the 49ers will get cold. Brock Purdy may make a mistake. One of the best corners in the NFL is on the Dallas Cowboys defense, and that's Trayvon Diggs. Now, whether he decides to cover... Debo Samuel the whole game. They decide to use him in coverage. They put him matched up against uh, George Kittle. I don't know. But all I know is if Brock Purdy finds a way to struggle, that inexperience starts to settle in, Dallas could make this game competitive. I don't think that they will, but there are possibilities. San Fran needs to put their foot on the gas pedal immediately, and they need to show Dallas who's boss. But I do have the 49ers winning. Similarly, like my partner, 7 to 10 points. It could become a blowout. But just for this respect of the offense that Dallas has, and if they were to get going a little early, like San Francisco started off pretty slow last week, I think this could end up being a competitive game. I have it being not a blowout, but a pretty decent margin of victory. I'm just saying the potential is there, but Brock Purdy and these boys move on to the NFC Championship. Yeah, I just, I don't think I can go against the 49ers right now. You'd be stupid to. The only team I know that we picked the Bills to not only make the Super Bowl, but to win the Super Bowl. I think those are one of the very few teams that could actually beat San Francisco right now. I'm not so sure about Cincinnati going up and beating San Francisco. You can maybe consider the Chiefs 
just because of Patrick Mahomes and that offense. But defensively, I think they would struggle against San Francisco, knowing how effective that San Francisco San Francisco's offense has been. So, you know, to me, in the NFC, I, I don't even know if the Eagles can compete with the 49ers. I just think the Eagles, the 49ers are that good. And um, until Brock you know, screws up in a game, which I have not seen from him yet, he's been very poised since filling in for Jimmy G. And I think if he just continues to win at this clip, Kevin, I know we talked about this before. There's going to be a quarterback discussion about who should be the starting quarterback moving forward for San Francisco, because I think that they found something really solid in Brock. And I know that they have Trey and more than likely Jimmy's going to be on the way out, but I, I think Brock has definitely made this quarterback situation in San Francisco very interesting. And if he continues to win, that's only going to favor him in the long run, especially knowing how well it, and really how poised he's been the entire year. He's been phenomenal. The conversation has already started. Let's be let's be frank. He won a playoff game. The conversation, you can make the argument, has already begun. The turmoil internally in San Francisco, you know that John Lynch is saying, shit, this guy keeps getting hurt. This guy's going to get a payday. This kid just potentially won us a Super Bowl. It's... It, it, it's a head scratcher for any GM, any head coach. And with Kyle looking at the options saying, it's not my call. I can work with anybody here. It's going to be, again, the front office's decision. And of course, Kyle's going to have to try to manage the narrative of, is it going to be a competition? Is it going to be the nod for Trey Lance coming back because he hasn't had a fair shot? I don't know. San Francisco has made quite a bit of a mess. And I think that they got lucky that Jimmy decided to stay and that that trade value and that market kind of fell to shit because of that shoulder injury. If this is Purdy starting the entire way behind Trey Lance, I don't know if they have this much success. So again, you can make an argument for either case. All I'm saying is the discussion has already started and the more playoff games this kid wins, I think he is solidifying his job more and more and more. I think that's fair. I couldn't have said it any better myself. Kyle, the next, the, this next one, I already talked a little bit about the Buccaneers. So we're moving on from the divisional topic, and we're going to get into this crazy news that has come through from Tampa. So the Buccaneers started the offseason, obviously, in, in the lieu of Tom Brady with the press conference that he had. We don't know if that was goodbye to football, goodbye to Tampa. So that, that rumor of where he's going to be has already begun. The next thing, the Buccaneers fired damn near every single coach on their staff. And with this being, you know, your favorite player of all times team, you being a little bit more in tune with this Tampa Bay as, you know, Tampa Bay team as a whole, what are your thoughts on Tampa firing everybody? Well, I think just from a general perspective, I'm not saying this wasn't expected. I think to the degree that this was expected, that's a little bit different. So more than likely, you know, Brian Leftwich was probably going to be on the way out as the OC, just seeing how ineffective Tampa's offense was this year. I, I mean, Kev, in Brady's first two years with Tampa, they were scoring 28 to 30 points a game. They were one of the best offenses in the league, and the stats reflect that. He threw, for I believe, 43 touchdowns in each season those first two years. This year, he didn't crack 30. So there was a major drop-off from Tom's production. And when it comes to the Bucks' offense as a whole, 
I mean, they took a massive drop off. They they became one of the worst offenses in the NFL, especially with running the ball. Kevin, they were averaging 60 to 70 yards rushing per game. That was like bottom of the barrel bad in the NFL this year. So it doesn't surprise me that Brian Leftwich uh, got the boot here. But Kev, let me just go over the list of coaches that left on top of Brian Leftwich. Uh, we had their specialist coach, uh, Chris bon- Boniel. I'm probably screwing up his last name. Uh, he got cut. Wide receivers coach, uh, Kevin Garver. He's gone. Offensive quality control coach, Jeff, uh, Jeff Castle. He's gone. And then to kick it over to uh, the quarterback's position uh, for their coaching staff, uh, their quarterback's coach, Clyde Christensen, and their senior offensive assistant, uh, Rick Christopher. Those guys retired. So in total, you had like five to six of their offensive coaching personnel leave or retire. So it tells me that just from the general manager position or the front office perspective, that they needed a whole new slate of offensive coaching staff personnel going into next year. And to be quite honest with you, Kev, I don't know if you could really blame it on uh, the coaching staff here. I I think this year in particular with the Bucks, their ineffectiveness, I think, was really mired with the offensive line just being poor. Now, you could say that the, the play calling was bad from Byron Leftwich, and, and I think that that definitely has some merit. But, you know, when you lose a couple pieces of your offensive line from, from last year, you had Ryan Jensen miss the entire season, basically, due to injury. You know, you're going to be starting guys that just frankly don't have the tenure compared to some vets that were originally on that Bucks offensive line last year. And I think it threw the entire offense into a tailspin. And, you know, that's why you saw the, the precipitous drop-off from an offensive production standpoint. Even if you have Tom Brady back there, you could just tell, like, they were limited offensively. I mean, Kev, he was one of the fastest quarterbacks to get the ball out of his hand as soon as he got the snap from the center. I mean, he was getting the ball within two and a half to three seconds because he knew if he held the ball any longer, he was either A, going to get sacked, or B, Donovan Smith or somebody on that offensive line was going to get called for holding. And the Bucs were terrible with their offensive holding calls this year, especially Donovan Smith, who at this point, as far as I'm concerned, is a scrub. He played like an absolute scrub this year with how many offensive holding calls that he got. Now, I'm not saying like like holding calls happen, but at the frequency that he has been getting these holding calls, it's just utterly atrocious. And I think the Bucks should probably look elsewhere uh, for that left tackle spot since he just failed. There's no other way to say it. Now, I think the only thing that's left is whether or not the, uh, Todd Bowles is going to retain his coaching, his head coaching spot. And there's no guarantee with that as far as I see it. And I think if they're going to try to retain Tom, I think they have to basically go all out or all in for Bill O'Brien and hope that Tom is still pretty fond of what Bill O'Brien was able to bring to the table when Bill O'Brien was his OC when both of them were in New England uh, at the turn of the 2010 decade. And in that specific time frame, New England had one of the best offenses to work with. And that was despite the fact that they didn't really have great pieces at the wide receiver core, except Rob Gronkowski, who I believe was only in his rookie or second year in the league. So, 
you know, when you look at Tampa's offense, they still have some great players. They have Mike Evans, Chris Godwin. Uh, they have Cameron Bray. Uh, Julio Jones was there, but he was dealing with injuries. So, you know, just from a target perspective, I still believe that Tampa has some good weapons here. But I think an entire offensive shift uh, just from a coaching perspective was needed. Uh, Tampa really pulled out all the stops when it came to that because the entire offensive coaching personnel has been completely flipped upside down. And uh, we'll, we'll see what happens over the next couple of weeks. But I think a lot of this is basically a decision to try to shake up the offensive coaching staff, try to bring somebody who's a little bit more favorable towards Tom to try to entice him to stay. I know there's a lot of rumors about Tom being potentially linked to Vegas, but I think this was, this was step one of potential several steps that the Bucks are going to have to take to try to retain Tom going into next year, which I know that they're still pretty high on him as a whole, despite how this year played out. But yeah, definitely some turmoil when it came to the Bucks and their coaching personnel uh, the last day or two. And um, we'll see what happens from here. But I, I think with some of these firings, I don't know necessarily if they were justified. I think they just kind of found themselves on the wrong side of the equation and found themselves on the way out based on how the season went. So there were going to be changes coming, but I didn't think it was going to be this significant. So I'll just kind of leave it at that. Kyle, did you mention by any means or by any chance the offensive line coach being fired? I did not. Hmm. Did you happen to mention any of their strength and conditioning coaches, any of their medical staff being fired? Uh, not in the list that I have here. Now That is very, will, very interesting. I will say, though, maybe that's another shoot to drop in the next couple of days or so. Maybe this was just the first slew. So I'm not saying that you know, based off of what we've seen so far that, you know, we're recording on Thursday that we could see some more moves potentially within that Bucks coaching staff. So, you know, there's no guarantee that even the offensive line coach and some of the conditioning coaches are, are going to stay. But as of right now, we're not at that point yet. Well, I'm only making the point that I'm, I'm, I'm alluding to in just a moment. I think this is a load of crap. I think this is the front office's way of deflecting and finding a scapegoat. So, when Byron Leftwich was the offensive coordinator for the last two, three seasons, pretty sure the Buccaneers had a pretty damn good offense when they were healthy. Um, pretty sure that they won a Super Bowl in the last three years. I'm pretty sure their 40-plus-year-old quarterback was in the discussion for MVP a, multiple to, a multitude of times. Pretty sure that they made it pretty far in the postseason both times. I mean, like I said, Super Bowl, I know they lost in the divisional in a comeback shootout against the Rams, but that could have gone either way depending on who you ask. So the year that they have a bad offensive performance, riddled with injuries, can't really run the ball because of the offensive line, and the defense decided to take certain weeks off, you fire one of the best offensive coordinators in the NFL over the course of the last three seasons because you have one bad year. You have arguably one of the worst offensive lines in the entire league, and you do not fire the offensive line coach. Everybody's been riddled with injuries. Defensive side, offensive side, multitude of receivers had some injuries throughout the year. And none of them catch the dust or bite the dust, should I say. I find it comical that Todd Bowles kept his job. Uh, when Bruce Arians was coaching this team, there were no issues when the offense had a dip. There were no issues when the defense had lull moments. But the very, very moment they have a negative record, everybody's gone except for Todd Bowles, offensive line coach, 
medical staff, trainers. Pretty sure they had a multitude of injuries on all sides of the ball. Julio Jones was injured. The offensive line was injured. You had injured running backs. I mean, you name it. There have been problems on that Tampa Bay football team. Tom forces Bruce Arians out of the head coaching position, moves him into the front office. Todd Bowles has to step in and deal with this train wreck of a team. Shaquille Barrett gets injured, so one of his best players on the defensive side. They lose a pass rusher. Obviously, the ineptitude of the offense week in and week out, statistically being the worst team to run run with the football, statistically having the worst offensive line, if not one of, and everybody gets the boot except the most important coaches that contributed to this poor performance or poor season. I'm not understanding how Bulls keeps his job. I'm not understanding how Byron Leftwich is the scapegoat here. Why would you get rid of him? There are plenty of head coaches that have years and years and years that are just horrible statistically. Maybe not even a great record. Offensive coordinators that should be fired religiously every single season. Todd Bowles has one bad season because of injuries, and you kick him to the curb for the potential of possibly getting Bill O'Brien? Tom Brady might even leave no matter what. Tom might retire. You can't just clean house unless you're rebuilding or you're bringing an entire new staff based on what Todd Bowles wants because he's the head coach, so he should be able to pick his staff. Unless Bruce Arians is behind the scenes picking and choosing what's going on. Again, this is just really weird, bad timing, and it just doesn't look good for Tampa Bay as an organization to just basically cut ties with everybody except for the key contributors on the coaching staff that did not help Tampa at all this season. I think Tampa's in shambles. If Tom decides to actually fully retire or leave, I think this is the full 100% green light to say, all right, our era for the Super Bowl has, has, has closed. Time to start a rebuild. That means everybody else has got to go. No more remnants of this team has to stay. Again, if Todd Bowles gets moved back to defensive coordinator because that defense still found a way to do something and keep them in games, I think that that would be fair. But you're going to need a new quarterback. You're going to obviously need to be uh, building up that offensive line again. You're going to need a brand new, complete coaching staff. And who's to say that half the people on this team that were just signed to contract extensions don't want trades, don't want out, don't want to be released, whatever the case may be. We have seen teams and players hold organizations hostage. So we have no idea what's happening in Tampa. It's just a really bad look, and I think it's kind of silly. Yeah, I honestly think that Tampa's kind of hanging on by a thread here. And even if Tom were to come back uh, next season for Tampa, there's no guarantee long-term that he'll be there after next after next year. So I think if Tampa's smart, you know, they try to entice him to come back for one more year and maybe just go all in for one more run and then blow it up after that. But, man, it's just, they're kind of like in this, it's weird. Like, I think they're kind of like in this limbo stage of, do we, like you said, potentially blow the team up to start rebuilding for the future? Or do we try to hold on for one more year to potentially go for another Super Bowl? And, Unless they make some wholesale changes on the offensive line, I don't think they're going to get back to a Super Bowl. If Tom's there included, I don't know if that's even going to happen. So I think it's done, I, man. They I, had their I, opportunity the first two years. Yeah, and I think, 
you know, I, I think, you know, to kind of like bring this back to the, the Tom part, I just don't see him returning to Tampa unless he's got some assurances. Nope. And not I, after that turmoil. And, and I think, you know, we're not, we're not going to really go into depth about Brady here and what he's going to do this off season, but there could be some greener pastures outside of Tampa, but I don't Fact. rule Tampa out entirely. No, but, not at all. But with that said, we're going to transition to our last segment of the episode. It's going to be an NBA one. Uh, we're going to go over our current MVP. I guess you would say ranks right now. Uh, we are basically at the halfway point, maybe a little bit past it. Uh, knowing that we're in the middle of January, we've got the all-star game approaching pretty soon. And Kevin and I pretty much do this every single year. We'll, we'll pick an M- a mid-season MVP. Uh, we've got some great candidates out there, uh, both from the Eastern Conference and the Western Conference. But, Kev, I ask you this pretty much every year, so I'll kick this one to you. Who do you believe is the MVP in the NBA right now at this current moment in time? Man, I feel like I'm I'm a broken record, and I know that it's kind of been the same thing for the last two seasons, but the man just continues to do it over and over and over. Nikola Jokic at the center position, once again, is at the top of the MVP voting, is at the league's highest for rebounding, assists, scoring. I mean, the man is averaging 25, 11, and 9.7 assists. So basically, a walking triple double at six foot eleven, while at the same time, the man is doing everything in his power to keep the Nuggets at the number one seed. The Nuggets' overall record in the Western Conference, by the way, thirty-two and thirteen, currently on an eight-game win streak, nine and one in their last ten. They have the best home record in the NBA at twenty-one and three. Oh. And the reason his scoring has gone down from last season, he got his best friend back in Jamal Murray. The Nuggets are firing on all cylinders. This man, Nikola Jokic, is doing it in every facet of the way you can possibly imagine, especially in the statistical categories that matter the most. As a center, you got to rebound. you got to block shots. you got to be efficient from inside the paint. And I mean, if you have a couple of assists here and again, which obviously he's well overachieving because he's averaging 10 Um, I would say that this is, again, he's making a case to get a third MVP in a row. Is he blowing you away with 30 points a game? Not at all. But there are games where he has flashes, 30-plus. He had a 40-point game. I think he had a 40-and-20 game, which was just absolutely nuts a couple of weeks ago. And, again, he is a rim protector. So he plays the center position traditionally and non-traditionally because, let's be frank, what center in NBA history won back-to-back MVPs and got better each and every season without the second-best pl- second player on the team? It's not his fault that Jamal Murray was hurt. It's not his fault that Michael Porter Jr. is made of glass. The Nuggets are finally getting healthy at the right time. They're going into the All-Star break within the next couple of weeks as the number one seed. And Nikola Jokic, rightfully so, is at the top of the MVP leader discussions. I mean, you can't ask him to do anything else, honestly, on this team other than actually play every single minute, every single second, and score all their points because he's doing it in every statistical category that matters. Kev, I am going to agree with you. I mean, at this point, I think that Jokic has proven himself to be the leader. It's just when I look at some other players out there in the NBA, I think we do have to mention guys like Luka, uh, 
Jason Tatum, Giannis are definitely in that discussion. And then absolutely, if you had to pick probably one more, maybe Joel in there, that'd be a pretty good solid top five just with all the guys that we've listed there. But Kevin, I remember we were talking about this last year and pretty much I think you could say arguably that this is the same scenario from last year that the MVP is pretty much surrounded by three people, Jokic, Giannis, or Embiid. I think this year it's a little bit different because now we have to throw in guys like Luca and, and Jason Tatum who are all playing Absolutely. at elite levels. But like you said, I, I think it's fair to say just based off of how effective that Jokic has been, I think he deserves that MVP leader or the number one spot in the MVP race at this point in time. There's one thing I do want to say, though, about Jokic. To me, Jokic, he's one of the best centers of this generation. And Kevin and I talked about this last year where he is one of the most effective centers that I've ever seen just with his effectiveness from shooting the ball and facilitating the ball. You know, the, the facilitating part is the crazy part for me because the guy's a center and he's putting up assist numbers like a point guard. He's not their point guard, but he facilitates as one, which is kind of crazy. It's just the offense that they run with that high pick and roll in Denver, but it's extremely effective. And usually, you know, when it comes to centers, they're mostly just known for scoring at the rim and rebounding. But the fact that he's added that third piece of assisting into his repertoire, it's crazy that he's able to do it and do it so consistently. However, if Jokic were to win a third MVP, which he has a very good chance of doing that, I need to see Jokic be the leader to carry the team in Denver specifically, not only to a Western Conference Finals, but to a NBA Finals. And the reason why is, is if he were to win three straight MVPs, now I will take into account that for the first two, Jamal Murray was not in that formula, which I will give him a pass on because if you look at the playoff numbers from last year, even though Denver got swept, he wasn't the reason why they lost. But if barring some sort of injury to Michael Porter Jr. or Jamal Murray, let's say they run into the playoffs as a high seed in the Western Conference and there's no injuries whatsoever. They are running a healthy roster and they fall short of making a Western Conference Finals or an NBA Finals. I believe the narrative about Jokic getting that third MVP, while he may get it, there may be a sentiment out there where some people are looking at him. It's like, dude, you have to get your team into a position to not only compete for a Western Conference Finals, but potentially an NBA Finals. I mean, I understand Giannis was in that MVP discussion last year. And he led the Bucs not only to an Eastern Conference Finals appearance, but he led them to an NBA Finals championship. And with Jokic, I think that this is a good opportunity for him. It's just, I don't want to see him fall short in that because I know what the narrative is going to be. People are going to go out there and say that you win three straight MVPs, but you can't lead your team into a situation where they're consistently competing for a Western Conference Finals or an NBA Finals. And I think that is fair to say. And mind you, I think that Jokic is one of the best centers that we've seen of this generation. The point that I'm making is, is that he has to prove that he could play 
consistently like he does in the regular season and do it in the postseason and get the Denver Nuggets into a situation where they compete for a finals. If he does that, I think he fully deserves that MVP. And I mean, just based off of what he'll do in the regular season, he'll probably deserve it. It's just, I think the narrative is going to flip when we get to the playoffs and he falls short and the Denver Nuggets fall short. Because if that's the case, people are going to start looking around like, why didn't Giannis get it? Why didn't Luka get it? Why didn't Jason Tatum get it? That's the part that I think could rear its ugly head against Jokic if they fall short, if the Denver Nuggets fall short. And, you know, hypothetically, he falls short in the playoffs, which I don't foresee happening because the playoff stats don't lead me to believe that way. But we'll see what happens when comes playoff time. You know, the MVP, it's a regular season award. And I think he's definitely on his way to claiming another MVP. But there are some other players out there. Jason Tatum's having a phenomenal year. They have the best record in the NBA with the Boston Celtics. And he's a huge leader for that. Luka's definitely in that discussion. Giannis is in that discussion. So it'll be interesting to see how it plays out for the rest of the year. But I will say, as of right, yeah, as of right now, Jokic is the leader. But if he were to get another one, I want to see him succeed in that Western Conference Finals and NBA Finals scenario that I laid out. But I'll just leave it at that. But Jokic is the favorite right now as far as I see it. Listen, I will make a final passing point at this moment in time in terms of my argument for Nikola Jokic, right? So I'm going to defend the other opponents, but the other candidates in this list. So we're going off of Kia as it is the Kia MVP award. And as of the 13th, it says that Nikola is the favorite. I am dismissing Luka Doncic right now because, yes, he is a walking triple-double. Yes, he's the best player on the Mavericks, if not one of the best players in the league. As a Mavericks fan, we're not winning games. He, yes, without him, we are horrible. We are probably a lottery team, which makes him the most valuable player. But usually, it goes to somebody that is winning. Top seed, best team in the conference, win streak, whatever it is. Best team in the league. Yeah. Dallas is one of those teams that is solely reliant upon Luka. If Luka has an off night, if no one else is hitting, whatever the case may be, right? Like I said, that is just not an MVP for me. That's that's not some like if the Dallas Mavericks make it as a seven seed, is he an MVP? Not in my opinion. I don't think so because he's not contributing to wins. Statistically, absolutely. But stats aren't going to get you MVPs. The only reason I bring up stats with Jokic is because he's doing it at the center position, and the Nuggets are the best team in the West. That's it. Clear, cut, and concise. Now, the person I would say is in second is Jason Tatum. Kyle and I were actually talking about this right before the episode. There are three small forwards right now in the NBA that are probably the best in the league. I would say right now, in my personal opinion, the way that he's playing at age 38 in year 20, you got to put Braun. I'm talking about just best small forward in the league. Yes, Jason Tatum is averaging higher points than him. He's on a better team. Talking about position-wise, what Braun is doing right now, whatever fountain of youth, whatever Lazarus Pit, Lazarus Pit for those DC fans that get that reference, he's doing it at a clip that's just absolutely just unheard of at that age. I got to give it to him at this very moment in time. I mean, LeBron James has scored 40 points in like the last, what, two or three games? Since he's turned 38, he's had like three 40-point games. <laughs> What what the... F- no, not okay. Yes, the Lakers suck. Yes, the Lakers aren't doing very well. I understand that. But I'm saying in terms of position point, 
I think LeBron James is still number one, at least right now. Jason Tatum's right behind him. Jason, it's like 1A, 1B. Jason Tatum is averaging 30 points per game, eight rebounds, four assists. The Celtics are the number one team in the NBA, obviously the number one team in the Eastern Conference, and they're just riding an absolute high right now. They cannot be stopped. And then at three, I got to have you know Kevin Durant in terms of just because it's KD. The Nets are a top five team. I mean, KD is just averaging, I think, 28, 29 points per game as well. So he is just right back up there as he always is. Again, my opinion for small forwards. But in terms of MVP, it is Nikola Jokic, Jason Tatum, Giannis Antetokounmpo, then maybe Luka Doncic. Like, he is not a top three NFL MVP candidate for me because Dallas is the worst team on this list in terms of where they sit in the conference and what the team does as a whole. Nikola Jokic is clear-cut and concise for me just because of how good the Nuggets have been. And again, to maintain this level of consistency, what he's been doing, back-to-back MVPs ain't easy. To be in the discussion again at this point, more than halfway through the NBA season, to have a potential third in a row, I you can't make an argument. He's going to go down as probably one of the greatest centers of all time. Because he's also an efficient scorer as well. 63% from the field. He's increasing his three-point percentage almost every year. 37% this year. Three-point percentage. He's an 82% free throw shooter. Historically, centers are not good at these things. He's not a traditional center by any means. Dude, he's like breaking historical records, which seems to be week in and week out. He's just a monster. I remember last year we were talking about him basically revolutionized the center position, revolutionizing the center position unlike anybody before him. Because, I mean, you go 10 years ago, I mean, Dwight Howard was probably one of the best centers in the league. And he wasn't known to shoot outside the three-point line. He wasn't taking mid-range jumpers. He wasn't facilitating like Jokic. He was getting rebounds, blocking shots, but again, Definitely. that was more of a traditional role. Yeah, where the traditional center was a rim protector or just dominated around the rim offensively and defensively. Jokic has completely revolutionized that position to the point where it's almost like a prereq now where if your center doesn't shoot consistently from the mid-range, some even behind the three-point line. That's almost kind of an obsolete player at that position now. So the fact that Jokic has shown this level of consistency and pushing the center position to where it's at now, that's credit to what he what he's been able to do. And Kev, he's still relatively young. He's in his mid-20s. 27, bro. He turns like, 28 next month, a month from today. Yeah, he's in his late 20s. Like, He's essentially in the prime of his career. He's got plenty of time. Oh, he's in the prime. He's disgusting. But my point, though, is if he wins another MVP and the Nuggets fall short, I think that he will probably more than likely deserve it just based off of what he's going to do in the regular season. I'm saying that there is going to be a narrative shift on him where he's winning all these MVPs, albeit deserved, but... You can't get that team over the hump to a finals or to a Western Conference finals. I'm just saying that there's going to be that narrative out there that is going to point towards, well, why didn't this person get it? This person should have got it because they got their team to the finals. There's going to be people, I guarantee you, that will say, if the Celtics get to the finals this year and the Nuggets don't and Jokic wins the MVP, there are going to be a lot of people going out there and saying, why didn't Jason Tatum win it? 
because not only did he prove it during the regular season that he can go toe-to-toe with Jokic, but he proved it in the postseason on top of that. Now, granted, if the Celtics didn't win the finals, if they just got to the finals, I'm just laying that hypothetical out there. There is going to be that narrative that's going to be like, maybe they didn't get that one right. Maybe. Mm, the la- I just pulled up the I last know- 25 MVPs. The last one to win a championship and MVP in the same year was Steph Curry in 2015. Okay. I'm just saying, like, people, like, James Harden averaged 30 damn points a game, yeah. scoring 50 multiple times. That, the Rockets ain't do shit. Like, yeah. you know what I'm saying? Like, it's just Russell Westbrook passed Oscar Robertson in 2017, walking triple double. They didn't do anything in the playoffs. You know what I'm saying? Like, it, that's why this award, I think 1,000%, it's obviously based on the regular season, but this type of situation is a perfect example why I believe, along with multiple other TV personalities, there should be a postseason MVP. Somebody that dominated through the entire postseason. I'm not talking about somebody that killed it in the first round, gets eliminated. Somebody that had a level of consistency, like a Dirk Nowitzki run. In 2011, I know it's a biased opinion, but somebody that dominated in every single round at a historic pace, that like that award should be rewarded to somebody that makes it to the finals that has a player of that caliber. I think there should be somebody that think, quantifies that that thing. I think that's what the finals MVP is for. And I, I understand there's a distinction between the postseason and the finals, but I mean, if you're talking about like let's say, for example, this is a good this is a good one. Remember when LeBron was just absolutely killing it with his second stint with the Cavs and Andre Iguodala won won finals MVP and not LeBron? I mean, you could have made a case that LeBron actually deserved that MVP for the It wasn't a case. It it should have happened. LeBron was scoring and doing everything statistically. They gave Andre that because he was the LeBron stopper. I'm pretty sure LeBron almost averaged 40 points a game that series. I think he averaged like 36, 13, and 9. Yeah, LeBron stopper. So I, I like, watched that very intently. There was no stoppage. Did he have a couple plays here and again where he made his life difficult? Yes, because at the time he was one of the better defenders in the league, but Andre Iguodala was not the finals MVP. Yeah, it, it's just, you know, postseason MVP. I mean, if you even look at last year, was Steph more than likely the MVP of the postseason? I mean, I know he it, was do, he was doing it pretty consistently at at, at, at every round, but I, he did I, step up more in the finals. I, I, I'm just saying, was there anybody that you would consider outside of him to, you know, win what you outlined as a hypothetical like postseason MVP, other than Steph? Was there anybody that you would? Put I mean, in that Jason, category? Jason, Jason was cooking in every round. Yeah, Tatum, Tatum was was carving it up, but to the point where you would supersede. Him over Steph? No, I don't think so. Because that that's that's kind of the point that I was trying to make with the finals MVP. Right. I think that's like, I got you. Like, I see where you're going. I, the finals MVP. I know they just say it's like the finals MVP, but it's like I think they could just kind of reserve that for like the players that well, you made it to this point. You're the last two teams, and now we're gonna like decide between. Who's going to be that MVP? And I think I, I think that's just kind of how they look at it. But I fully understand where you're coming from, from with the whole postseason uh, MVP thing. The I last think- person to win MVP three times in a row, Larry Bird, 84 to 86. 
So I'm just saying that is pretty it's damn elite, hard to it's do. Elite company. That's elite company right there. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I think it's going to be a two man race by, by the time we get to like March. I think it's going to really between, it's going to be between Jokic and probably and Tatum. Jason Tatum. Yep. You know what? I'm not going to count on Giannis. No, you can't. So Giannis is probably in third fiddle right now. But I say so, yeah. I'm not going to count him out either because when he gets on a run, dude, he's unstoppable. Because, I mean, he could he could put up the stats just like Jokic can. But the thing is, Giannis could probably score more. Giannis can give you those 40 and 50 bombs. Jokic, Jokic really doesn't put up 50 bombs. He doesn't have to, but when he gets it going, I he, he can could, definitely he, go for 40-plus. He, he could definitely. And get the rebounds and assists with it. Giannis won't really get the assists. He'll get the rebounds. But, yeah, like those three guys right now, I think those would be the guys that I think are, are one of them is going to win it. It's just going to be who's going to. But that's facts. I think, I think, I think that's, a, that's a good three as far as I see it. But Jokic is the leader as far as I see it right now. But with that said, you guys, that will pretty much wrap it up from us. Uh, I know it was a lot to get to, uh, but hopefully you guys enjoyed it. Obviously, uh, going into this weekend, like we already stated, you know, we got some big NFL games in the postseason. So these division round games are going to be exciting. Hopefully you guys get to enjoy them. And, um, you know, just as time goes along, you know, unfortunately for Kevin and I, the the NFL content is going to kind of be winding down because we are reaching that unfortunate end of the NFL season. But nonetheless, we are still going to have plenty of NFL content for you guys. Um, Do expect an uptick in the NBA content. So. That's why Kevin and I kind of went over the uh, the the MVP race at this point, and uh, don't be surprised if we do some more in depth analysis on just some teams that are hot at the moment. I know the Grizzlies are on an absolute heater right now. The Celtics have been on a heater. Kev, who was that we were talking about? There was another team that we were talking about before we started recording that was just absolutely on a tear right now. I just forget the name. We talked about Memphis. We talked about Denver, and we talked about. Uh... I think Denver. I think Denver was the other team. I think Denver's on a nine-game win streak. Right? Yeah, Denver's on an eight or nine-game win streak. And then we talked about Boston. Yeah, those are the three. Yeah. So I, I mean, don't be surprised if you know we just dive into a team that's just having major success right now, or someone has just an absolutely bonkers type performance uh, going into next week. So that that's pretty much all I got, Kev. Um, obviously, you know, appreciate you guys tuning in uh, week in and week out, or episode by episode whether it's on the audio platforms or uh, the visual side like YouTube, we definitely appreciate that. And hopefully you guys continue to support us as time goes along. But Kev, that's all I got. The floor is yours. All right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we will see you guys again Sunday after all the games have been completed. And until then, have a great weekend, and we'll see you again soon. Take it easy, you guys. Hey there, fabulous souls. I'm Stephanie Baklaan. And I'm Eden Alpert. And we're the hosts of the brand new podcast, Unapologetically Fab. Get ready to join us on an amazing and real journey as we dive into life after 40 and own it. We're all about changing the narrative, leaning into who you are, and living a life by your own design. Join us as we embrace life unapologetically and redefine success. This is Unapologetically Fab. An electric cast production. See you there. Electric acid. 
Hey, it's Tim from 50 Years of Music with 50-Year-Old White Guys, the comedy podcast you had no idea you needed. Join Ben, Jeff, and me as we continue our musical road trip back through the years and around the globe. See, just when you thought all white guys were like Joe Rogan, you come across three educators trying to remember when we were cool. 50 Years of Music with 50-Year-Old White Guys. Electric acid.